You see these men are photographers. What is their background? You say they are credible? What are their accomplishments? You say they will be whiskey? I will join them. Welcome to the RGG EDU podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink Dornish wine, your favorite photographers. This podcast is brought to you by Sekonic Light Meters. Using your camera's light meter can yield decent results, but nothing compares to working with a light meter. It will help you understand lighting so you can control it better. A meter ups your game big time, and Sekonic has a range of them to fit your needs and your budget. Head to Sekonic.com to see the tools that they offer. In this episode, we're sitting down and drinking a Sapporo with Jeff Greenberg, who is a trainer, speaker, writer, consultant, colorist, what, what, and there's like 10 other things. Mostly full of shit. <laughs> and alongside and, Rob Grimm, I am Gary Martin. Yeah, we're day drinking again, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, it's it's 1249. Yeah, as long for, as it's afternoon, time I'm for yeah. with it. You know, it, it, if it was just, nine in the morning, you know. <laughs> We can have, live by that adage. It's it's afternoon somewhere. It's it's happy hour somewhere. But sure. I, I need it to be past noon. All right, Jeff, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into this industry? Mm. This was an accident. I really made my Jewish parents upset. <laughs> so um, I uh, had a prior life. It was around some fitness stuff. I uh, get divorced. I go back to school for pre-med. Take a film class, a basket weaving class. Genie Hall, Penn State University, Com 150. Basket weaving? Well, film, he's saying film it's theory. just an, oh, throw oh, yeah. film theory. Yeah. Yeah. A film theory, the movie of the week class. Com 150, a thousand people are in the class. A thousand people? A thousand people, Com 150. Uh, it was in Schwab Auditorium in Penn State, if you have any Penn State listeners. Maybe. And I, um, my roommate turns to me and he goes, you're really liking this. Do you know that they have a film program? And evidently was a little hard to get into. And two weeks later, I was in the film program. Right on. And that's so, where my Jewish parents, who thought I was going to be yeah, you from really a failure, <laughs> a divorced failure, going to be a doctor, suddenly I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. And they, they were probably upset. Uh, they, no, they were thrilled no. that, I, uh, that I was going back to school. They were thrilled that I was doing something with it. And the fact that it was creative was scary. But my mom was an artist. She was uh, oil and canvas, watercolor. My dad was a lawyer, a wordsmith. Um, they were sharp people and, you know, a balance of uh, language, a balance of visual arts. And uh, they really indoctrinated to me this, this accidentally. And I grew up when cable just hit. I was of that age mm-hmm. where you would watch a show and you could see it again. I think I saw the Blues Brothers maybe 50 to 60 times That's as a, a kid. Well, it is, but it becomes this great film school sure. uh, and you know i fell in love with guys like robert rodriguez in film school mm-hmm. uh, i actually was an extra on the faculty because he had an open audition call and i drove through texas just to be an extra on my way out to la but uh it was all an accident it was all an accident i really wanted to be a screenwriter not a director every kid in school goes i'm going to be a director and you do the math and there's only so many directorial mm-hmm. jobs i uh, love structure i love telling stories uh, I thought I was going to get into screen- screenwriting, and my big fear was I'd leave film school and not be able to get employed. I uh, accidentally, in a class, they had this thing called an Avid, mm-hmm. uh, version 5.5 at the time, and I sat down next to somebody, and the computer stuff, I've been using computers since like 1977, the computer stuff I had, 
And I watched this guy work for six hours. And from that point on, I was creating my own more or less degree in post-production and finishing while I was in film school. So they didn't have a degree program for post-production? You really got to write it? It was, it was film. Um, I didn't – I mean it wasn't official. I have a film and communications degree. But my instructors, uh, the two of them, uh, one was uh, Ned Faust who was possibly the best production instructor I've ever seen. He was the sort of guy who wouldn't solve the problem. He'd give the kid – he'd say, I need this sort of shot set up. That's the gear you guys have access to. Work it out. Somebody would go, well, who's the DP? He goes, I don't know. You guys are adults. Figure it out. I'm over here if you have a question. Figure it out. And uh, Dorn Hetzel, who to this day is still my mentor, still my dear friend, and he was an editor. He went to AFI, and I get my hands on an Avid, and I'm just rocking and rolling with it. And it was something I knew I could get employment with. Anytime something's a little bit difficult, technology-wise, has always been my forte. So I'm a creative, but I love the technical. Mm -hmm. And I don't do that thing where you go, oh, I'm just a creative or, oh, I'm just a technical guy. I think anybody who's super technical can be more creative and everybody who's creative needs to be more technical. I, uh, instead of interning, move out to LA uh, in the summers. My buddies who are older than I are helping me find work and I am editing and going back and finishing film school because if I didn't finish school, I was going to be a truck driver. <laughs> <laughs> then you would have disappointed your parents. <laughs> uh, they would have been okay with they Listen, at that point, they were so disappointed so many times they were they just... They couldn't happy. be broken any further. Yeah. yeah. So you used Avid for the very beginning years, and then now you're using everything, right? Well, I use a little bit of everything. What happens is uh, this is a time when AvidEditor.com existed. You could literally look at a listing and make a phone call, and there would be five people for the job or three people for the job. And I was working a little bit in L.A., and I was working a little bit in Pennsylvania. Uh, and a couple years into it, my, my dad gets ill with Alzheimer's. We weren't really sure what it was, and I moved back because I need to help my family and be mm -hmm. supportive. And uh, I need to go home at eight o'clock, six o'clock at night. I can't, I can't do the post life. Right. You know, the we've 24 hours. You're not going to sleep this weekend. Right. And I end up uh, applying for a gig. I almost didn't apply for the job because they, uh, they had the job had been listed for about six months for trainers for a group called Future Media Concepts. They were out of New York, but they had a Philly office. And I walk in the door and they're like, "Great, oh, you can do Avid." And I go, "Well, yeah, I can also probably teach Final Cut." Dreamweaver and Photoshop. And this was unheard to them. They were used to more people who did one thing. And uh, a year, two years later, I was the head instructor in their company. I was the first full-time person outside of New York. And I was uh, the woman who uh, started the program at Apple uh, had actually started the program at Avid. And when she got it up and running at Apple, she's like, you need to come up and be in my first class. And that's how I got Apple certified on top of my Avid certification. Uh, years later, Adobe, recently, I would, or I'm a fan of Premiere. I'm mm -hmm. a huge, huge fan. I've got uh, three books on Premiere Pro, a ton of stuff on Linda. What happens is when Adobe got the Mercury engine playback working, suddenly they knew they had something on their hands, and they were lobbying me and a couple friends to really help get people educated around it. Wait, what's the Mercury engine playback? Oh, cool. Um, I, I don't know. Cool. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's good that you stopped me. Slow me down. Remember, <laughs> tell me to take a drink of beer if I need to. Get this man a shot of Jack Daniels, would you? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it's going to be one of those days. Yeah. Yeah. Hope you don't have to teach after this. I have to, I have to teach right after this, and I have, to teach, uh, I, have to, I have to take out my premier brain, put in my final cut brain before the Ooh. end of the day. All right. I want to get into that too. But So uh, the Mercury playback engine, when you throw media into Premiere Pro, 
and it hits your timeline. It turns one of two colors, yellow or red. Red means it's being handled by the CPU. Yellow means the Mercury playback engine, which is using the GPU as yep. well as other technologies, takes over. And you get uh, this un almost an unlimited playback capability. It really was frightening the world before this and the world after this because people started offloading so much of the work to the GPU and getting really great and crazy performance. Uh, they just brought a lot of it into After Effects as well as the Lumetri engine and the scopes. So uh, they start to have an editor that means that I can take notice. And I'm good with shepherding people. I shepherd people from film and movieolas and Steenbeck's into Media Composer, people from Media Composer into Final Cut, and then it became both of those two, especially with Final Cut 10. Some people really resisted it, and I helped them move to Premiere. Uh, recently, the same woman who started the product at program at Avid started the program at Apple, a woman by the name of Patty Montesian, has started a education program for Black Magic, and I was on her shortlist. I'm a resolve. I uh, graded a film that was in a film festival called Frameline last year. Uh, she's like, I need you on board with our program. So uh, I'm a master trainer in these tools, and what that means is I teach train-the-trainer classes for these groups. Yeah, you're known as the trainer's trainer. Uh, that's that's that could be good could be so bad. who's the person that trains you the um, trainer's trainer trainer learns it all it's, it's, it's it, that's you know I, cubed no in dead seriousness um i i learn from the people who know the tools sometimes even better than i do i don't know everything in these tools i'm not even in any illusion of that my strength is in structure and storytelling yeah so i can take stuff that's very complex and painful and this is part of what I guess you guys do. But I take stuff that's painful and I find a way to make, give that connective tissue mm -hmm. to make people not just understand it in their heads, but in their hearts. And when they understand compression in their hearts, it changes the relationship. It takes the fear away. And that's my biggest thing that I like to do is I like to help make smart people smarter. I like to show them that these tools are amazing and powerful and not to be intimidated by them. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, what, one of the things that we do in showing people how our photographers work, um, we identify the pain points. You know, what are the challenges that they face every day when they're making their imagery? And how do you overcome that when you're new to the business and you don't understand everything about it? Or you've been in the business a while, but you've never faced these challenges. What, what's your favorite pain point in photography? <sighs> My favorite pain point in photography? Um, that's a good question. You know, is it I, HDR? I, is it a... No. I, uh, my favorite pain point. You know, I don't know, man. I think I'm so jaded because I've been in the business so long. For me, I still like the challenge of working with the clients. It's always about the relationships well, well, and and, you know, work, and working with the clients. I think that um, the technology side does flip me out sometimes because it's growing so fast. But at the same time, I've always been like, – I used to drive my wife crazy because the night before a big shoot, I'd be like, honey, I got, I got to be at the studio because I just got a new camera and I got to figure out how to make it work. She's those like, house blads? Yeah, she's, yeah. She's like, why are you doing that the night before a shoot? I'm like, because it's – No, but I it's can't, passion. You know? It's passion for right. the craft. Um, I think one of the – you're talking about one of the favorite issues that I do that's not tech training, which is – Client relations. Mm -hmm. It's one of the hardest things. The, we, there's a um, lie we tell ourselves that we, we've mastered Photoshop, that we've mastered how to do composition in the camera. I've seen people who are definitely not the best techie people behind the keyboard, definitely not the best shooters, whether it's film, whether it's camera. 
but because they are amazing client handlers, the clients come back time and time again. Yeah, it's, it's a soft art and right. it's hard to teach. Uh, and one of the best parts is, is for me, my best client relationship is if the client is calling you about something, you've already dropped the ball and you needed to be more proactive about your communication stream with That's them. That's a great tip. Honestly, that's a great. If they're calling, looking for something, you have overlooked something yourself. Uh, can I can I give you a video one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, every this I'm going to I'm going to literally somebody out there. I'm going to make them more profitable with this. Nice. All okay. right. Get okay. your pens and paper. We're going to charge for this episode. Yeah, you can charge for this episode. <laughs> Uh, simply being every piece of media you ever let a client look at gets watermarked. It gets watermarked for two reasons. So if I'm going to have somebody look at a cut, whether it's an early cut that's just an assembly, whether it's a later cut, a finished cut, it gets a watermark on it. The first reason it gets a watermark on it is I know they didn't read the email where I said, hey, I'm sending you this. It's got temp music. All I'm looking for you to do is start looking at the story and how it's shaping mm -hmm. because the email I get back is – <laughs> uh, I'm not not exactly sure where it's going. Yep. Hate the music. I burn in right on the video. Temp music, picture approval only. Right. Two. They can never take it and do anything with it until they pay me. Yeah. And we. That's a great. That's a great tip. You know this yeah. thing where we talk about client relations. No matter how great that sexy new client coming in asking you to do the biggest job, he's, he's the guy who's sitting back and asking you to do that dream job of the photography of the Lotus or, or some really cool cars. If you're not signing a contract, you're burning yourself. Well, if you didn't get 33% or 25% on that first exchange when you started the work, if you have that, if you have that burn in, they can never walk within the client who turns to you and goes, hey, yeah, I'm going to pay you, but I need you to take off that watermark. That's the one you don't do it to. Not only do you not do it, <laughs> but you go, I need you now to pay me today right. or we're not talking. And it puts people into uncomfortable spots. But it was already a problem because it should have been done with better clients. You know what? I think that's a great tip because quite honestly, that's not something that I had done in my career. And very often I'm working remotely. I've got clients who are somewhere else. And we're working on an image and we're doing some quick assembly, right? Um, taking two or three images, kind of bleeding them together quickly. And we'll send them a JPEG and say in the email, this is a JPEG. It's only for composition. Um, keep in mind it's a JPEG. It's compressed. So don't look at it for color and don't necessarily look at it for fine-tuned lighting. It's better on our end. And the first thing they do is say it's too pink and the shadows are too, too deep. They haven't read the email. Um, they're completely ignoring what you're saying. It's like, ah. You know, of course it's pink. It's a JPEG that has been sent via email. So it's gone around the world three times. It's gone through Japan and over <laughs> Singapore onto – Is that what how the internet now? works? Yeah, it's how it works. That's it the, the route through the internet? Japan through over, over Singapore, Singapore under Iceland. India. Oh, under India. No, Iceland, it goes right through. It melts. It drips right through Iceland. <laughs> Part of global and, warming. Yeah. Part of and global it warming. Yeah, exactly. And it lands on their BlackBerry and they can't see it. You know? um, sometimes the best new information – feels obvious. Right. So you'll have to promise me yeah. uh, six months from now a year when you're flipping through the podcast episodes, you'll have to tell me if it made a difference. Oh, I'm sure it will. It's a, it's a really like, good I can't, I question. can't believe that you – like this is sort of like – I know I, I'm embarrassed. I'm a pro and I, I can't believe no, no, we, this. But we but, all have yeah. myoptic spots. We all have blank spots. I'll give you a great example. Yesterday I was teaching – two days ago I was teaching a VR class, sort of an overview of the field. And I brought in a couple friends. One of them is Douglas Lyman's uh, VR guy, mm -hmm. this guy who did the Born Identity. 
And we're talking about stitching, and stitching is just an awful – panoramas, at least in photography, the head stays in the same spot. And when you're shooting VR with multiple cameras, you have parallax and stitching problems. It's not pretty. And this guy dropped a bomb. Uh, Lewis Smithingham turns to me and he goes, well, you could always shoot nodal. And I go, what the hell is that? Yeah, what does that mean? And it means you take the camera and you put a nice wide angle lens and you shoot 180 degrees in front of you. And you can have your crew behind you. That's where you put your crew during it. And then you flip the camera around and you shoot something in back. And you've got a stage action in both spots. But now your stitch is perfect because there's no parallax problems because the lens, the camera, the image is in the same spot. You're using your stitch the nodal is point. Right? right. And it's – I'd never heard of – nodal yeah. point to me, by the way, is resolves nodes for color yeah, correction. Yeah. <laughs> different nodes. Okay? Yeah, totally different node. And it, it was like a ton of bricks. And I'm right. telling you, I rewrote my presentation and put three slides in talking about nodal stitching and nodal VR work. Right on. Uh, we have blind spots all the time. I love those spots. I, they're the most joyous parts of learning to me is when I find something that I should have known. Let's define the nodal point for our viewers because I guarantee you almost none of them know about it. Yeah, I, I, I can't do it. You're going to have to okay. do it. So the nodal point is the point in the lens where – so think, think about the, the way light comes into the lens. It comes in and it crosses – and then it changes its path and it hits the sensor. Oh, not before it goes over Singapore. Right. That point that point after Singapore <laughs> and where I'm sorry I brought that up. Where the light Instantly crosses. Instantly regretted bringing that back up. Anyway. I, reg I regretted you bringing it up too. <laughs> All the regrets. Jesus. All right, I'm going to finish this, guys. Yeah. That, that point inside of the lens where the light literally crosses, that is the nodal point. Um, and you, there are different ways to measure. You can look at all of your lens information. It'll basically tell you where it is. But um, it, it, the best way to do it is to actually get a slider. What was it? It was, was a really, really right, right stuff, stuff makes slider. a really good nodal slider. Yeah. And Holy then, shit, you both know about this. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so yeah. the way you – Because I heard it's big in photography. The, it's yeah. huge in photography. So it's, you mount, it's you, a big thing. You mount your camera on it. Find your, your uh, focal length. And then you basically do a rotation and you find two points, uh, foreground, background. And you do it in a way, and you, you tune it in when those two points don't have a parallax effect. All right. So uh, I'm going to do parallax. You, you keep, you you keep teach moving. Parallax. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Okay. So you're going to have to do this at home. We're all going to do this here. I'd like you to take your uh, finger of either hand, first finger. I'd like you to put it about mm, a foot away from you, right about where your nose is, and hold up your finger. You, you have to do this with me. Okay. Now, By the way, the whole crew is doing this. this, this except, for, except for MJ because he's got to run a camera. But no, he's doing it too. He's got, right? he's got a monopod. He's fine. Yeah. Um, now, close your right eye. Open your right eye back up. Close your left eye. Now, with one of your eyes, your finger jumped. Look at it again. Figure out which eye that you saw the image jump. Was it your left or your right? It's my right. My right. Okay. So your right eye, your left eye dominant. You're not right eye dominant. Your left eye does most of your vision and viewing in life. Your right eye assists, but your left eye, your left foveal vintage. Jesus image. Christ, you just blew my mind. That means I've been using the wrong <laughs> eye for 26 years in the business. We use both eyes to interpret <laughs> images. Our brain are these magical, but that's a parallax effect. But you're doing your, most of your primary viewing out of the eye that it didn't jump in. So hmm. when you close one eye and it ju jumped, that's the um, eye that, that your primary eye is. Okay. But the idea of it jumping is the parallax effect. It's that your eyes, your intraocular distance is about, uh, about four centimeters or so. And that distance 
when things are closer to you, they jump more when things are further away. And that's what makes stitching kind of a problem in VR, especially when we talk about six or so cameras that are definitely positioned differently. When we talk about 16 cameras on a jump rig or somebody who's built like a custom dragon, a custom red rig, you get some real problems and stitching gets further and further away as a starting point from the camera. Suddenly my friend uh, Lewis drops this nodal bomb on me and I'm, I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest concept. You couldn't do the cool thing. You couldn't have somebody walk from the rear camera through the front easily. You'd have to do some really good blocking. But, you know, if you're kind of smart and you hit this a little bit, you could do this really nice yeah. nodal shooting and get a perfect stitch. And stitching is kind of the bane of VR. Yeah, the, the simplest way to, to describe it is you're finding the perfect center point inside a lens for which you base your pan. Mm. So your pan mm -hmm. point is mm -hmm. right over mm -hmm. that point in the lens Got where it. the light crosses. Cool. So when you pan and take multiple shots, you're not getting any parallax. You're, right, and you use it for perfect. panoramic photography. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Now, do you guys use a ton of uh, auto gigapana? No. Or is there a no, better I've tool? Never, I've never done that. Okay, um, so it's, I'm going to say, and I love, I love the chief scientist at uh, GoPro because that's who owns them. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Jenny has been such a nice and giving guy. But I'll tell you, these tools really could use a pass of user interface and ease. There are times where you have problems and you have to go into your images and lasso elements and deal with the root mean square value, the RMS value. And my God, I don't care. I want to be able to just stitch and go and right. edit. And it interferes this sort of pre-processing for me as a creative is heartbreaking. On the other hand, to me, it's an assistant editor's job. It's somebody who can be a specialist. We've now created some jobs in our field. We talk about all the time with the new tools and the new things, removing sometimes positions. Well, the digital imaging technician, the uh, VR assist, has these are these brand new jobs. Uh, the DIT in LA, is uh, there's a whole union around that job. And that's people on set who are doing the job of backing up all your information. Uh, with reports and keeping your, your you insured well. Right. Uh, the big uh, one of the big tools for that is Silverstack, and the other one Shotput Pro, and they both will do at the yeah, end yeah. a uh, PDF report with checksum information, guaranteeing that the files were transferred. Yeah, Shotput is a good thing. We've just started using it recently, and it's they, the, it's good. Well, just recently. The guys I've known these yeah. guys for uh, almost a decade. They're so nice. Uh, the tool was so wonderful. The presets in it, if you're doing a lot of transferring, you can say copy it to all these drives really quickly. It's really nice. It does um, something unique about it is it does what's known as uh, parallel transfers. It'll copy to multiple locations at the same time. I love my Adobe tools, but Prelude and Premiere will only copy to one drive at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it will make its next copy. It's serial copying rather than parallel. Right. So, so VR is becoming yep. a big thing, right? Gary, you wanted to get into this. In no, I wanted to go into VR. Let's get into Let's, it. Yeah. So where is VR right now and where is it going? Uh, VR is over at uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the corner the, of 13th. and It's all around us. Um, so we're in the nascent infancy of this. Yeah. How much so? We don't really have yet to find wide shot, medium shot, close up. We haven't gotten the language of this down far enough. There's a couple things that I'm beginning to watch. I'm beginning to see evolve. It's VR is going to be much more, at least as far as actors, 
um, much more theater-like, but it's the difference between sitting in the audience to see your favorite film and sitting in the middle of the scene. There won't be as many rapid cuts forcing your attention, but could you imagine? I, I need a favorite film. Can, can you Blade Runner? Blade Runner. Can you imagine at the very beginning of the film when Leon's in the Voigtkampf machine, instead of you watching it from the outside, that you're Very sitting minute. right next to the desk, right up close between the two of them? Yeah, that'd be cool. It, it, would, <laughs> it would change your relationship with work. It's immersive. Yeah, that'd be nuts. That is one of my favorite films of all time. So it's a brilliant film. Which version yeah. do you like? Which one of the seven? Uh, actually, I do like the director's cut. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so as much as I am a film geek, yeah. my, I'm Twitter. I'm film geek. Right. I am going. You're going to just. I'm instantly going to become a persona non grata when I say <laughs> I actually love the voiceover version as the one I saw in the theater. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of controversy with it. I feel it added a little bit that was missing. Um, maybe it was because I was of that age. You're not going to be persona non grata. I, I do like that version as well. Um, I mean, the director's version I love. I can't wait to see what they're doing with the sequel. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me but too. this idea of immersive moments, if we have the buy-in that we watch moving images for emotion, anything that gets you closer to that emotion, it's got to be done right. It's got to be done well. It can't just be I'm throwing down a camera. And there's nothing wrong with strapping on a GoPro and going skiing or going skydiving, but you're probably only going to do it once or twice. Mm-hmm. For something to be repetitive, it needs a little bit more interactivity. And that's what I mean by we're really in that early age. Instead of it just being a scene, it becomes much more powerful if one of the characters in a VR piece, especially in the very establishing moments, is looking at you directly in the eye. That emotional contact. Can you imagine again if before Leon's walked in the door, I forget the name of the uh, Blade Runner, the detective who's interviewing him, but he were to stand for a moment flipping through Leon's file and looks directly at you and shows it, and now you're part of the part story of at that level. So you think that, that VR right now is still kind of limited because if you're, if you're going into Blade Runner and you're sitting between the two of them, you're not going to want to keep coming back to, to sit there in that same experience with the way – because right now you can, I can watch that movie over and over and over again. But I've, I, seen, but it, I've I, seen it 60 times. Yeah, I, I guess know, I know because it's, it's just 2D. So if it's now VR and you're experiencing it, if you don't have the ability to change your experience, are you going to want to keep going back? So, all right, a couple things there. Let's, let's uh, unpack a bunch of things. First, uh, my dear friend uh, Lucas Wilson was formerly with Jaunt VR. He's now uh, got his own VR group. They, they have one of the Jaunt like these cameras that you rent for four and five grand a day right um he calls regular film flat cinema i just want to do <laughs> that because right. that's fun um but uh for one of his thoughts which i think rings true about emotion is interactivity just having a little bit of like a smoke field just having something you can interact with but yes greater buy-in but i want to um I want to call back to a film called La Regle de Joux. I think it's your wife who teaches immersive French. Yes. Uh, La Regle de Joux, Rules of the Game. This is the film that they threw tomatoes at the screen. You know, the famous film where they, mm-hmm. they were show, screened to an audience and the French took their tomatoes out and pelted the who screen. Who brings tomatoes to a movie? Yeah. The French. French. French in the, like, 40s. And they're baguettes. <laughs> this is, this is baguettes, uh, and bag, baguettes and um, coffee and uh, cheese. Yeah. 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 Really, safe way. Um, but this film is uh, Renoir. It's Auguste Renoir, Jean Renoir's son. Mm-hmm. I believe I have that right, that order. 
And the film has got what's known as deep focus. Um, I'm going to make some comparisons back okay. to photography just because it's part of your in first love. Lexicon. First, right. first love. Right. Um, one of the things that you look at, you know, Ansel Adams' work is it's black and white. He's taking color away from you as a storytelling piece. And everything is in deep focus. It's up to you to some degree to see the beauty in there. And part of it is his, of course, composition of the scene. Mm-hmm. So this film, Regula de Joux, has got deep focus. The entire film, the filmmaker is not doing as much of forced storytelling, doing a set of jump cuts into somebody's face, telling you what's important, hiding what's important. He leaves you to find what's important, and it's, it supports multiple viewings. I was paying attention to this conversation, but this was kind of also going on too. Mm. So I think VR has some very interesting immersion, and when it's – there's a um, great Paul McCartney piece that as you turn your head and you're hearing the story of Paul McCartney around this uh, – the work he's doing, mm-hmm. each instrument plays part of the music. And as you pay attention to that instrument, it comes to the foreground of the music you're listening oh, to. That's cool. And this is something that's kind of a little bit beyond some of the filmmaking stuff because we're talking some programming pieces here. Mm-hmm. But I feel that VR has a lot of emotional resonance because you, you're teleporting. You're, you're sitting here and I can go and literally immersively take you somewhere else. And that's emotionally powerful. But we're still in the baby steps of it. I don't know what will be the great story with it. I don't think it's going to take away from flat cinema and television. Yeah. It's just going to be another thing we and, watch. And what about AR? I mean, do you think we're going to get to the point where you, you can like walk through a movie, like you were watching a movie, and you get to like walk in and around the characters? I don't. I don't know about that as far as AR. AR to me is much more about functional real world overlays. The idea that we're having a conversation as I look at one of you, I'm seeing parts of your LinkedIn feed. The fact that I'm sitting yeah. back here in a hotel room and I could reach over and with my hand wave and it knows where my eyes are, where my hand is, and I can turn on and off the lights without actually having physical objects. Augmented reality to me is me interacting yeah. with the world. It's not Are yet. Are we going to have contacts, do you think? Do you think we're going to see that in our lifetime? Uh, uh, no, no. You don't think no, so? I, I wish. I oh, wish. That'd you be know? cool. That'd be really cool. I, I mean, as long as we're at it, I want my flying car, okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that exists. Yeah. <laughs> right? That exists. But yeah. it's, it's to me the um, augmented reality is an overlay to the world. And for me, that overlay is communicating information. In fact, um, I've played with a HoloLens. It's really a super cool experience. But as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, I struggle how to integrate that into the things I do. VR, on the other hand, I go, no, I get this. Mm-hmm. I'm telling stories here. I, you know, we, we can have, <clears throat> for me, the uh, story I want to see is something really cramped and confined, like being in a mine. Hang on, drink your beer. <laughs> <laughs> drink your beer. Drink your beer. Like being in a mine and having a little bit of flicker go on. And during the flicker, maybe we can cut. Yeah. You know, yeah. using the um, milieu to to drive the storytelling. One of the things that makes The Matrix such a powerful film is it's not about the effects. The effects help tell the story. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things is if VR helps you tell your story, 
then you should be shooting in VR. You shouldn't just use VR because it's a cool new tool. Yeah. We were talking to somebody else uh, in the podcast earlier, and, and, and they did bring up the Matrix and the, the, the fact that it wasn't the effects. It w the effects did help tell the story, but it was the fact that they couldn't tell where they were in the story. The story was so complex and there was so much depth to it, and the special effects just kind of threw them in another in another realm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting take on because they were so influenced by that film that set them on the path. That in the uh, late '90s was one of those uh, really influential films, and at the time when it came out, it it was kind of bubblegum bubblegum action film, right? You know, but as we look at it, in fact, and we all complain about the second two films because the writing wasn't as deeply integrated as maybe it should have been. They were rushing, right? Get that big box office hit again, right? They started to have that cash come in. They wanted to get the Wachowskis. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, suddenly the bullet time, which was used for a whole bunch of car commercials and demos, becomes part of an organic part of the storytelling. That's what we look for when we play with these tools. We don't want them just to be cool, shiny objects. If somebody turns to me as an editor and they go, oh my God, I love the edit, I know I, I failed. You know how I know I succeeded? When they go, the story was great. I was crying. I was clapping. I was happy. I was sad. Mm -hmm. If you're watching content that is storytelling content and you're telling me about what the cutting felt like, well, then I failed. Right. My wow, job is to assemble a piece and for you to be so engrossed that you stop paying attention to that and you start caring for the characters, rooting for them, hating them. I don't care. A film is told three times, once on the page once by the director, once by the editor. That's a great nugget. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, take that to the bank because that's, <laughs> so that's a good one. What's the last movie for you that really moved your – what's the last movie that made you cry? Ooh. ooh. Piglet, so, Piglet's Big Adventure. So <laughs> in dead seriousness, um, I, have, uh, uh, I have a lot of gray hairs on my chin here. <laughs> uh, I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old, and my ability to consume content has radically – radically dropped it's very oh, yeah. you're uh, not sleeping <laughs> I'm, I'm getting good sleep but uh you know if i was in my 20s if i was uh if i was passionate you have the ability to have your hands on netflix and watch a film every night and i would start with that imdb top 100 films and inside of a year i would watch them all if i had that sort of spare time Mm -hmm. Part of being an adult, part of having children yep. mm -hmm. is suddenly you wake up in the morning and you go, I only have so much time and I want to spend some of it with these magical little creatures while Absolutely. they're part of my lives. So my ability to consume stuff has radically gone down. That being said, I watched Inside Out with my little girl and yeah. I cried during parts <laughs> of that film. Yeah. Um, I'm watching this content and it, there's nothing that drives me crazier than watching bad kids content. Um, so I'm a huge fan of like Daniel Tiger and Doc McStuffins, but, uh, I, I will like kill myself before, uh, like watch one of the Clifford shows. Um, <laughs> Peg and Cat, Peg and Cat is just absolutely amazing. It's this idea though, that content should move you. I, I really, really dug like the Marvel films. I mean, I'm a, I'm a classic sci-fi geek, Marvel, Star Wars, Rogue One was amazing. Uh, my favorite emotional character in that is the blind guy who's sort of a yeah. quasi Jedi. The force is with me and I'm with the force, yeah. something like that. And I'm watching this and can we do spoilers or not? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. sure. Not? If sure. you so, haven't seen it by the time this comes out, you're fucked up. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, everybody dies. And that end scene where Vader 
is it, it is the most kick-ass five minutes of that film when Vader is walking through the car- corridors and it connects into the Star Wars. But you go, holy shit, he is such a badass in it. It was such a powerful yeah. moment. I love emotion in storytelling. And when something is boring, when the actors are bored, when they're just phoning it in, you can feel it. We know you're tight on time because um, you have to go teach a bunch of stuff. But one of the- I, I, I got some, we've got a half hour. Right. we got some time. Whatever is good for you. We're tight on time. Actually. Okay. Oh. Um, but one of, the, one of the things I, I, I want to talk about is you, you're known as a fixer in the business. Sure. Um, how did you get to that level where um, people came to you and said, I, I, he's got to fix it for me? How do you get that reputation? What do you do? Um, so what happens is you become somebody they meet. Yeah. They don't know how to solve a problem. And you go, I think I can solve it. And if I can't, I'm not going to charge you money. And what happens is that you solve their problem. So sometimes I'm figuring out a workflow problem that uh, somebody has screwed up uh, an acquisition of something or they don't realize a camera has been set. I actually had somebody uh, – I can't give you all the details, but somebody about three weeks ago shoots a major interview, a major star. It's, they had left the auto gain the auto, auto gain on their camera, and it's so the autofocus. Oh, yeah. And it's oh. every six seconds. It's back focusing. It's, and it's just doing it the whole time. Oh, man. And they call me up, and they, I look at the footage, and I go, yeah, this is force majeure. You're never going to be able to fix this. You're going to tell them the camera cards blew up or something, act of God, and, you know, you know insurance will cover right. some of it uh, because there was no solving it. And if I could have figured out how to solve it, I would have charged money for it. <laughs> um, you know, there's the adage, good, fast, cheap, pick two. Right. Um, <laughs> which one? one. Oh, oh yeah. well, well, no, I want to give the real version of it, which has one more line. Which one do you want to give up? Yeah. Uh, good, fast, cheap. You pick – everybody's going to pick good. Right. You get a client and you say, well, which one do you want to give up? Fast or cheap? You either bought yourself a nice leisurely delivery cycle or you've got them to admit they're going to spend more money. Right. But it's the idea that when somebody is reaching out to me, I may not have a lot of spare time. I'm in the middle of writing a book for Black Magic. I'm in the middle of recording materials uh, for editing and resolve. Uh, I have two different clients. I may still have to go to Singapore again in June. Over Singapore. Oh, no, no, no. To Singapore. Which, by the way. <laughs> He's going through Singapore. Through Over Japan. Japan. <laughs> they speak English in Singapore. And oh, the food yeah. is amazing. And it's super yeah. clean. Super clean. Can't If you spit, you, you get a $500 fine. Yeah, that's crazy. So no gum chewing there. Yeah. So what happens is. is uh, you can't gonna... piss outside anymore, Rob. You'd, oh, be, thrown, you'd be thrown in jail for two weeks. <laughs> so what happens is somebody comes to you and you go, I'm going to take a shot at this. You're screwed, and if I can fix it, I can fix it. Um, I meet somewhere on the order of about two to 5,000 filmmakers a year. And wow. my general rule is you can ask me any question you want. Emails are free. Phone calls cost money. Um, if you email me and I'm at a point where I've got free time, I'm help. I'm glad to try and help you. Uh, but it's going to be slow. It might be a week, you know, three right. days a week. You get me on the phone, I'm dropping everything else I'm doing. So when I'm coming and helping somebody fix something, I'm getting to know them because I save their ass in one place. And somebody goes, hey, I'm stuck. And they go, I know this guy. Right. Or they go, we've got three editors and we need to switch tools. They go, I know the guy who can come and teach you this. So you're a colorist too, though. You do more than just editing. Right? I, I um, The problem with just doing one thing, wearing one hat is – Probably those days in life of just being the best photographer in the market, that's 
four guys, you know, 20 guys. You need to be able to know how to handle your images through RAW and you need to be able to know how Lightroom works unless you're at such a high level that, you know, uh, you can have people do it for you. Uh, what happens is you you uh, move out of your comfort zone. So about 15 years ago, I'm doing rudimentary color correction. I go, I do a train the trainer with Avid. I learn how Symphony works. Apple comes out with a tool called Color. And suddenly I'm selling some of the work I do for finishing because I have the tools for professional finishing. People are happy with the content. Great. So I'm now start. I was now starting to teach it. That's about 15 years ago. Uh, Apple Color and uh, Avid Symphony were where I started, and nowadays when I have the space for it, it's Resolve is my weapon of choice. Although I'll tell you that the Lumetri panel in Premiere Pro is absolutely kick-ass. We're doing a day-long hands-on color correction class here at NAB on Thursday, and I love in Final Cut the color board. But I also love uh, Denver Riddle has a plugin called Color Finale for about a hundred bucks that gives you curves in Final Cut Pro and it gives you a three-way color corrector. I think a good colorist is one of the most important things you can have. I mean, well, it's it, all about the eye. Oh man, it's, it's all about the eye difference. and emotion. Uh, and I'm still a little bit. I still vignette the hell out of everything. <laughs> <laughs> I still do. <laughs> All right, so set the record straight. Sure. When Apple came out with Final Cut 10 and everyone was up in arms. Sure. Was like what's your opinion? Was, so nine shit? nine days after Final Cut 10 came out, I taught a webinar and we had I think about 600 people attended on Final Cut 10. I will tell you the same thing that I'll tell you then as I'll say now. It's not shit not by a long shot. The problem is that we're indoctrinated into a way of working and a way of editing that we probably ought to re-examine. We ought to look at. Let me give you a great example. I, Stockholm syndrome, by the way. It's literally we're attached <laughs> to our tool okay. and our tool changes right. and we don't like the changes. So therefore, the tool is dumb. Premiere Pro, you use bins. Final Cut, let's do Final Cut 7, you use bins. I've worked with a film bin. A film bin is a square trash can where you hang actual film in. Final Cut, those things are folders, baby. They're not bins. Yep. Why are you calling them bins? Why are you even organizing your material? If this was anything else, if you were doing stuff online, we, we tag stuff online all the time. We use keywords and intelligent searching. Why wouldn't I do that for my media? Why wouldn't I want my media to recognize faces and automatically show me close-ups, medium shots, and wide shots? In days where we are under faster and faster turnarounds, why wouldn't we want our software to do that? Why should you have to know what the hell a codec is at all or how to generate a proxy? You should just throw a switch. Final Cut 10's beauty for me is in the fact that it acts like an assistant editor to people who don't know they need an assistant editor. Hmm. Nowadays, we're over... That's a great way to put it. We're overshooting more. We're handling media that we don't, we're, we're not as comfortable with. We're handling 4K and this stuff invisibly does smart things like copies all the media to a single location. So when you're done, you grab the library and you move it and you've just backed up the whole project. Can I do that with Premiere? I absolutely can. It just takes extra steps. It doesn't mean Premiere isn't a joyous, beautiful piece of software. It just means that they're taking a different approach. And in the sense that it's really healthy for you to understand the design and plan behind the way these tools work. If you can figure out what they were thinking when they were doing Final Cut 10, you'll maybe, because there's smart people. We will all agree Apple people are Absolutely. smart. Adobe people are smart. Blackmagic people are smart. If you can pick up what they're doing, 
you can see the beauty in these tools and how they can make you work smarter and faster. Um, uh, I'm trying. You should never have to figure out what the hell a sequence type is. Yeah. You know, you should never need to know that stuff. And Final Cut 10 does a beautiful job. Let's just talk about your pocket. Um, I'm seeing uh, one, two MacBook Pros. How many? How many licenses of Adobe Creative Cloud do you have? Mm, just a few. I think we only have like three. Ten. Ten. Yeah. Ten. Okay, so we'll do the math. Fifty a month. I'm sure you're getting it maybe a little cheaper. Maybe not all of them. But let's call that five hundred a month. So uh, that's two copies of Final Cut. 300 we'll, we'll just do some bad math there and you never need to buy it again yeah and you can now be spending your money on plugins you can spend six hundred dollars a year on plugins and own most of these and now suddenly you've expanded what you do apple's biggest problem with final cut 10 is bad marketing they should have for a year given you parallel when you bought final cut 7 you got final cut 10 for free they should have given you a better handoff experience but the tool the tool is a great tool and my, I love my people at Adobe. They're, they watch that tool because they see that's a smartly designed tool. And my friends at Apple watch what Adobe is doing the same way. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't played, by the way, with the essential sound panel and the new version of Premiere Pro, it's pretty kick-ass if you don't know what you're doing about audio. Uh, we leave that to the editors. I sit down and I watch and I give feedback. But Yeah, I never touch I'm that I'm way stuff. too ADD for <laughs> sitting down. So uh, what did you think of Final Cut 10? Um, so I used to work for Apple. So oh, I used to where I used to teach. Um, I was an expert in their uh, stores, and I worked on the business. You were team. one of the creatives. Yeah, yeah. What so, city? St. Louis. So, uh, I, I, so I did two years of you know teaching. Who and, was your train the trainer teacher? I don't remember. Okay, I don't remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, I spent two years doing that, and then transitioned into this. And I wanted to to take everything that we learned on how to teach, and just the theory behind how people learn. And actually, we took a, a few other people with us. So pedagogy, our, the pedagogy of education. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so most of our company is from uh, former Apple employees. We hire phenomenal. a lot of Apple yeah. people. They're That's, smart. Uh, I know a bunch of guys who are creatives. One of my uh, dear friends, a guy by the name of Ian Robinson, uh, Robbie Carmen. They were both. They both spend time working in Apple stores as creatives. Robbie is one of the sharpest colorists in the business. I know he runs a website called Mixing Light. Uh, that's where I release my color related stuff. Um, in Robinson is the guy who does, uh, both, uh, after effects and motion stuff for Linda. He's, uh, another really sharp guy. Motion's a great tool. For example, it's biggest handler for me is the video cards didn't keep up with that. It might replace a flame. Yeah. You know, um, but you've worked with Apple, the Apple, uh, uh, um, mentality is pretty, pretty sharp. It's not for everybody. Sometimes it's a little frustrating. You know, uh, we're now all using, we're going to have to buy USB-C cables for our MacBook Pros. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Are you going to get a touch bar system? No. I, I just, this is brand new and I bought the old one because I, I can't do the touch bar. I mean, I think the touch bar was is, is nice, but they positioned it as a tool for creatives on the pro level doing like Final Cut and like stuff in Adobe. They yeah, positioned think, it all right. I think I think it's totally off on that. I I think the I'll tell you where I, the touch bar is brilliant. You're in Photoshop. You're full screen. You're working with something, and you want to change the color of of something. You can use the touch bar to change the color without having to key in a panel, without having to take it off a of full screen. Yeah. The touch bar is a perfect use there. But if I'm editing and I'm looking down, I've just failed. My my goal is a uh, when I'm using software is never to be looking at the keyboard. Yep. The keyboard should be an extension of my fingers. Totally intuitive. Yeah. And when you learn the tools right, 
They are. My, uh, my Photoshop set of examples are, uh, what's the key for the crop tool? I'm not, no, no, I'm not here to trick you. Go for obvious. Crop. Yeah. C. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. T or something, isn't it? C. Oh, it's C no, for T, crop. T is scale. C. So C is crop uh, in Photoshop. Uh, but do you know what the key for the brush tool is? B. Yeah. Okay. How about for the default colors? The default colors. <laughs> D. Z. Right. How about how to exchange the foreground and background? Uh, X. Now, not everything I ever do has that sort of uh, magic. Uh, the healing brush looks like what thing in the world? Looks like a magic wand. No, no, not the magic. Oh, no, no. no, The healing brush looks like a Band-Aid. Yeah. Who makes Band-Aids? Johnson & Johnson. Letters J for the healing brush. And when you find out, when somebody shows you this information this way, suddenly your hands go to where they need to be because you're not going, I need this brush. Oh, J for Johnson & Johnson. Now I have the healing brush. Back to the B brush. Back to the V pointer because it's the shape of an arrow. I need to crop. I need the magic wand. M is for marquee. So what's what would the key be for the magic wand? X. <laughs> Don't do that w. to me. Thank you. W. w is for the magic yeah, wand, yeah. right? And it, when you see that smart people have built these tools, when you approach it like this, suddenly they become an extension of yeah. your hands. Yeah. Suddenly they become the tools we live in, and they become invisible. You get to be as fast as possible. So the touch bar fails for me. If I'm looking down at the keyboard, it's a failure. Well, that makes perfect sense. Jeff, our producer's waving, saying you you gotta you gotta get to teaching. We okay. don't we don't make you late. <laughs> Is there anything I can do for you guys? You've been so kind and wonderful. Well, oh. you can do a couple things. One, yeah. um, probably come back because I think there's a wealth of information that we'd still love to tap. So one of these days we're gonna have to do. If I get asked you again, happy to. And secondly. Tell people where you want them to go to find out more about you and the work that you do. Sure. So the easiest way to find me, um, and I don't do it often enough, is tweeting on Twitter. I'm Film Geek. I mean, I'm Film like, Geek. Film yeah. Geek. I mean, I love film and television. Uh, I'm at J, the letter J, Greenberg Consulting. Uh, the next time I teach after this, uh, at least that we'll run into a lot of the stuff you do, is I'll be at Adobe Max. Do you cool. guys go to Adobe Max? We will yeah, this we year. Will be there. Yeah. Uh, we, we can definitely do a version of this in Max. Great. I think You I'm, should co-host with us. Come on. I, as a third co-host. If, you, if, you, if there's alcohol, I'll absolutely do. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm there, there's alcohol there. Yeah. We usually just fill up the bathtub full. We lucked out with this room having a, a fridge. It's but, a problem. Yeah, it's a, so it's a for... For Max, I'll be really frightened to hell. When, I'm always frightened to hell when I teach. Uh, but Max is magic and special because they – it's like Adobe's Mecca. And if you, have you ever been to Max? No. No. no I'm excited. <gasps> oh, are you guys going to have the best time? Do me one favor. Sure. Um, about a week after NAB, there's about four things you need to know, which is like reg- get your hotel as fast as possible. Already register, did it. Register for your classes because the classes will sell out and max and then you'll end up waiting in line and it's magical to see somebody like john knoll talk or uh uh is it julian cost julian cost yeah Yeah, to see her get up and talk in a room in front of you is absolutely unbelievable yeah Yeah. well awesome so download this episode as always go to rggedupodcast.com and make sure to give us some feedback write us a review on itunes and myspace yeah definitely hit myspace yeah not friend not not friendster (laughs) <laughs> no we could be on, now we're on Friendster yeah. <laughs> add another one right. thanks just so, like MySpace thanks so much Jeff. thanks so much appreciate totally it totally my pleasure you guys are super gracious thanks perhaps I would try this photography I have always been drawn to landscapes especially the mountains this podcast is brought to you by Sakonic 
Light meters have helped generations of photographers and filmmakers set themselves apart from the rest of the pack by helping them produce consistent results in any lighting situation. Light meters are the common tool used by every lighting master. Head to Sekonic.com and start your journey to becoming a lighting master today.